Amen. I trust that each of you had a, a great Thanksgiving. Um, probably ate too much. Um, I know I did. Uh, enjoying family and friends and, and really enjoying our great God. What an awesome God we serve. You know, some of you may be wondering, what is this black curtain up here? And what's it doing there? And, and um, we do have a Christmas program that is being planned, and, and they're working hard on it. And I, I, um, uh, Joel was working on that this week, and he left for Suriname, and he said, can we put something over that? Because he doesn't really want you to know what's behind there until it's time. So that's what it is, is we're working through this, okay? And uh, it may be there a, a few more weeks, uh, two or three weeks, but uh, I know that we will be pleasantly delighted uh, when the time comes. But if you're wondering, that's what that is, that is all about. But um, God bless you for being here today. And I know that today I just want to see if I can raise our sights, raise our vision about who our God is and whom we worship. You know, anyone know uh, what an aptronym is? An aptronym? I see a plethora of hands. An aptronym is when someone's name and their occupation line up perfectly when what they're called describes what they do. Okay? Here are some examples, like Dr. Bowser, the veterinarian. Okay? Or Ray, Roy Gout, the bricklayer. Or maybe Dr. Pullen, the dentist. Or, this was my favorite, Otto Nogo, the mechanic. Sometimes I want to think of myself as auto no-go. You know, many, many parents spend significant amount of time trying to figure out what to name their children because we know that a name is more than just what someone goes by. It, it means more than just how we refer to them. You know, in Old Testament times, a name stood for a person's reputation, for their, their fame, for their glory. And parents often give children names that describe their hopes and, 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 the, and the future expectations regarding that child. You know, a study of Bible names often reveals a whole lot about the personality of the person. I mean, when you think about people like, you know, David, his name means beloved. We call him a man after God's own heart. Or Abraham, a father of the multitudes. Or Jacob means deceiver. And Jesus, his name means Jehovah saves. Wow. <laughs> I love that. You know, all these people and many others in Scripture prove true to their names. And my desire this morning, like I said, is to, to lift our eyes, to raise our vision of who Jesus is. And today we're going to hone in on the fourfold name, if you will, given to Jesus about seven years, excuse me, 700 years before he was even born. 700 years before he was born, he was given this name. You know, there's over a hundred names for Jesus in the Bible that are associated with him and numerous others that are given to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Many, many names. I want to read in Isaiah chapter 9, 
And if you have your Bible uh, or tablet or whatever you have your scripture on, if you would open your scripture up to that point. But um, Isaiah chapter 9, I want to read uh, 1 through 7. When you get there, would you say amen? Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says this. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult. And cloak rolled in blood will be for burning. Fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Loving Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, for the prophecy in Isaiah. I thank you for the Lord Jesus, whom you gave. Came from heaven, born of a virgin, to dwell among us. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you for his sacrifice. I pray, Father, that even now the Holy Spirit will guide us in all truth. And, Father, that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts and examine our hearts and show us our inconsistencies, show us the places where we've given over ground to the enemy. Father, I pray that a great repentance would come upon us. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we enter the Christmas season, God's children, along with many, many lost people, are going to be looking at and hearing about the birth of Jesus Christ. I mean, we sing songs about Christmas and we retell the story of his coming into the world. We, we read passages out of the Bible about how Jesus came to earth. We, we have Christmas programs and plays to, to commemorate his birth. And we give gifts to one another. 
as a way of symbolizing the ultimate gift that, that God has given us through Jesus Christ. See, it's a wonderful time for us to honor the day when God became flesh and dwelt among us. I love this. Because 700 years before he came, the prophet looked for the coming somebody. Didn't know who it was, but he knew all about him. He was looking for somebody the one who God was bringing. In Isaiah's seventh chapter, he is a baby more potent than all of our battles. <laughs> Hallelujah. He's a baby that's more potent than anything we face. Here he is the prince of the four names. He's called wonderful in that his person and his performance excite amazement. When we see the things that Christ has done, we are utterly amazed, completely and totally amazed by his presence and his power. He'll be counselor in his office as the ultimate administrator of God's truth and the fountain of all wisdom. He will be the father of eternity as, get this, the one who made it and the one who gives eternal life. His principality will be one of peace. And briefly stated, he is the mighty God. The mighty God. See, Isaiah could not know all, of, all that this meant. And just as an astronomer knows there must be another planet out there, although he's never trained his telescope on it, although he's never seen it, he knows there is something else out there. And that's what Isaiah is saying. There is somebody that is coming. Somebody. I mean, what kind of blessings will his work bring? Scripture says that he brings hope to the hopeless. He will come to darkness. He will, he will come to remoteness, those who are isolated, and to rejectedness. And he will turn them into light and access and acceptance. Oh, I'm so thankful that he included me. That I am within the bonds of his salvation. That he has given that freely. You know, for Isaiah, the northern tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, they represented all that was obscure, all that was exposed, all that was degraded, all that was remote and marginal. Those two tribes represented that. Nebulun and Zebulun, excuse me, and Naphtali. The reason why is they were some of the hardest tribes that were hit when the Assyrian armies invaded in 733 BC with Tiglath-Pileser. They, they, they wreaked utter de devastation on that area. They were the first hit and they were the last left by the brutal invaders. And their land was settled by the Assyrian government with immigrants from other countries they had conquered. And so what they had done is they had taken the purity of the 12 tribes. They have taken two of those tribes and they've intermingled them and intermixed them with all kinds of other peoples. And their gods. Talk about devastation. 
Talking not about not feeling the, the, the blessed of, of, of being God's chosen people. The mix with the local population caused the spiritual and the moral condition of the land to sink deeper and darker even than in its blighted external state. It was a place of hopelessness. Look in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13 and following. Matthew says this. I want to begin in verse 12, excuse me. Now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. It says in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, far away from the capital of Jerusalem, far away from the temple, that district was cursed with the intermingling of Jews and Gentiles. It was in Isaiah's generation the last place on earth to expect the most significant event in all of history. The last place. See, in fact, Jesus was raised in Nazareth of the northern tribe. Of Zebulun. The prince of the four names here, he brought hope to the most hopeless place, both in anticipation and in fulfillment. I mean, what could be more hopeless than an unmarried teenage mother, laden with child, turned away from the only accommodation available? What could be more hopeless than the congregation? Of the shepherds. People whose testimony wasn't even allowed in court. You see, what happened there was a significant event that brought hope to the hopeless. What more hopeless future than an infant being, <laughs> being chased by a tyrant. The whole of the Christmas message in anticipation and in fact speaks of God's absolute ability to bring hope out of the hopeless. See, you believe the very fact of Christmas if you consider your own situation to be hopeless. He brings hope to the hopeless. He also brings peace to the peaceless. See, this announcement of his birth is accompanied with the promises of a universal Savior, not only in Isaiah, but also in Luke. The prophet says there in verse 5, For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak that is rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. Huh. I mean, from the very first rays of his coming, the prince of the four names holds the only hope for peace. Because his coming will end the need of war because now there is a way to peace. We now have, know that peace is possible. You see, his coming will end the knowledge of war because the implements of war will be burnt. 
right beside that cradled Christ, Isaiah sees this fire burning beside the cradle that is, is the, the, the instruments of war are being burnt up in that vision. The coming of Christ means the rejection of the instruments of war. While we parade them and we put them in museums, Isaiah says they are fuel for the fire. We're done with that. They are fuel for the fire. Hope to the hopeless. Peace to the peaceless. That's my God. That's my King. He also brings government to the ungovernable. Everywhere we encounter this coming somebody... He is the governor. He is the ruler. He is the ultimate king. See, his government will be personal. Isaiah tells us it's for us, for unto us. Other governments of men are isolated. God wishes to bring his government near to us. We call him Emmanuel, God with us. So that we might be linked. He brings him near as the breath of life. He brings him near to us so that we might be linked with the administration and the administrator of the entire universe. That's the message of Christmas. That's what he's saying. He's personal. His government is personal. It is also perceptible. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us. A child will be given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. I mean, he's going to be seen wearing the robe and the insignia of government. In his first advent, he is the, the, the ruler who is a servant who served, and his, his government was not visible except to those who followed him. But when he comes the second time, his second advent, he will be the servant who rules and all who, who know that the government, they will, everyone will know, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His reign, his government will be personal, it'll be perceptible, it'll also be perpetual. Verse 7 says that there will be no end to his government. All of humanity's governments, they end in time and space. They run out of territory. They run out of time. But his will expand in space and in territory and in time forever. <laughs> That's my king. He rules forever. His government is to be purposeful with judgment and justice, it says. You know, people seek power today for power's sake. But he will be given power for justice's sake. Oh, that's the king we serve. It says, wonderful counselor there. Hang with me. Wonderful counselor. And this title literally means a wonder of counselor. Wonder of a counselor. I mean, Jesus said to his disciples when he was here on earth. That he went to, before he went to be with the father. That he would send them another counselor. The parakletos. The Holy Spirit. The comforter. One who performed the function just as he did. While he was with them. That he would send them the Holy Spirit. You know and, and with Jesus as their counselor. 
He gave them guidance and wisdom and led them in ways which they were to go. After the resurrection, he gave them the Holy Spirit so that they would not be without guidance. He is a wonderful counselor. It also says there that he is the mighty God. Well, here might be a spoiler alert. Okay, that word, mighty, the adjective there, literally means the God hero. Okay? I mean, you're looking for a superhero? He's right here. He's right here. It refers to one who is strong, one who is mighty, one who is invincible. And he alone is the hero that, for us. He alone is the one who is worthy of our praise. He is the one who has defeated all of our enemies. He's so profound in his counsel. And he has the power to accomplish his will. See, this title also tells us that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but he is also God the Son. Think about it this way. The humble carpenter of Nazareth is also the mighty architect of the entire universe. <laughs> he was up front about his identity in John 10 when he said, I and the Father are one. I love that. Because Jesus can manage anything because he's mighty. He healed the lame. He, he healed the blind. He healed the sick. He calmed the storm. He brought Lazarus back from the grave. And so he can do the impossible in your life and mine. Because he is the mighty God. He can give us victory over whatever it is that is in our life that we are struggling with today. Because he is the mighty God. The secret is to let him fight our battles. We can't do it on our own. We need him. Worship Him as your warrior and praise Him for His power. You remember the words spoken by the angel to Mary in Luke 1. She, he said, for nothing is impossible for God. See, Jesus did the things that no other man did, proving that He was God. That everything about His life showed that He was divine. He was born of a virgin. The miracles that he performed. The fact that his, he personally forgave men and women of their sin. That's something only God can do. That's what Jesus did. And then his very resurrection from the dead. We can't do that. But God can. I like the way Ray Pritchard writes. He says, as the wonderful counselor... He makes the plans. As the mighty God, He makes the plans work. It also says in verse 6 that He is the eternal Father. He's personal. You know, in Jesus, God has come near to us. But understand this. Jesus was and is and will always be. Okay, he's eternal. Means that he lives forever. He may have been birthed by Mary, but he was not created by Mary. 
He existed eternally. He existed eternally with God. In the beginning was God. And the Word was with Him. And the Word was Him. You see, I love that because when we talk about who Jesus is, He lives forever. And He lives and He loves like a Father. I mean, Christ is holy, but He's human. (laughs) He's dwelling on high, but He's nestled in the hay in the manger. He's the God-man. He is a child and a son, but he's also an eternal, eternal like our father. Psalm 103 says it this way, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Jesus was the one who created everything that exists. That's what Colossians 1 tells us. That he had created everything that exists. And even as he told the the Jews in his day that before Abraham was, I am. And he's connecting himself with the great I am. That it was I am who sent him. See, through though Jesus is the Son of God, the third person of the Trinity, from all of eternity, he was God. And so he is the eternal Father. It also says here he's the Prince of Peace. This phrase can be translated as the Prince whose whose coming brings peace. You know, a Prince in the Bible times was considered the General of the Army and also brought with that leadership and authority. This title reverberated back across the centuries and it's echoed through the hallways of heaven and finally culminating in the expression of the angelic adoration in Luke 2. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Oh, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. See, to a people who are constantly harassed by enemies, peace is the premier blessing. If you've ever been harassed by enemies, you know that all you want is peace. Every life that Jesus touched, he brought his peace to it. Every life that he touches today, he brings the peace of God to humanity And the only true peace that people will ever have is the peace that comes when Jesus sets up his kingdom in your heart and on this earth. He alone brings true peace to people of all different cultures, of all different backgrounds. You know, a cynic, a a skeptic, maybe even an atheist looking at the world today in 2018 would laugh this promise to shreds. Listen, the fulfillment of this promise is not left to a cynic. The fulfillment of this promise is not even left to us as believers. Verse 7, the end of verse 7 says, For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal, the passion, The ardor, the enthusiasm, the intensity, the eagerness of the Lord will accomplish this. 
It's not left to you and me. It's left to that mighty God we've been talking about. It's his work. See, nothing else but the zeal of Yahweh could do it. God's intense honor for his own name will see that this promise is inaugurated in the first advent and will be consummated in the second advent. When Jesus returns, it's all part of the plan. We read about it and we know it. This promise is as certain as God. It's his word. Do you realize that God is especially passionate for you? He loves you beyond anything you could possibly even imagine. Right where you are, he has arranged all of the details of his intricate plan to deliver you from the bondage of sin, from all of those things that bind us so that we can freely serve him with our whole heart. He does this by his profound counsel, his, his powerful character, his personal comfort, and his peaceful countenance. Have you experienced these expressions of our Lord, of Emmanuel? Do you know him personally? You know, I want, I'm almost done. Do you know the late uh, Dr. S.M. Lockridge? In 1976, he preached a sermon in Detroit. And it was called the, 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 seven, the Seven Ways, The Seven Way God is what it was called. And he's describing who God is. I want to share part of that with you. He says, the Bible says that my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder... Do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's eternally sincere. He's eternally steadfast and he's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has, that the, has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the peak of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meager. I wonder if you know him. 
He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his light is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your head. You can't get him off your head. You can't outlive him and you cannot live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And praise God, the grave could not hold him. I wonder if you know him today. That's my king. And the most important part of our message in verse 6, it says, For a child will be born to us. And then it's repeated, a son will be given to us. The gift of Christ is a personal gift from God to us. A gift requires a response. If I put a gift under your Christmas tree, you can admire that gift. You can look at it. You can acknowledge it. You might even say thankful, thank me for it. But if it's yours, it only becomes yours when you open it and receive it to yourself. This gift from God must be received in order for it to be ours. See, Jesus is calling us. He's calling you by name. Will you call out on the only name given under heaven whereby we can be saved? That's what Isaiah is telling us about. A mighty God that we can put our trust in. Do you know him? Do you know him Personally, because if you never received him, you don't know him. You know about him. You know all about him, but you may not know him. And on that day when we stand before him, it's not going to matter what kind of facts I know about Jesus. What's going to matter? Does he live in me and do I live in him? We must confess him. As our Savior and Lord. You can sit through a thousand sermons. And still not know Jesus. But he's calling. He's knocking. And he invites you to open the door. And to invite him in. Let's pray together. Loving Father I thank you for this time. And I thank you for your word. I thank you, Father, that you are passionate about us. 
I thank you, Father, that your zeal is what will accomplish this prophecy and this promise. Father, you've already sent your son and he died. He lived that sinless life and he died on the cross for our sins. And we become your child by confessing him and asking him to come in. Asking him to forgive us of our sin. That his blood would cover our sin. And we become your child by accepting that payment, that ransom for our sin. Father, in that we have been justified. That when we stand before you, you will see your son and his blood covering us. Father, that is the only reason that any of us would ever be worthy of heaven. Lord, we don't get it by, we don't achieve it by being good. We don't achieve it by coming to church. We don't achieve it by knowing all about Jesus. But Father, we achieve it by knowing Him personally. He is a personal Savior, and I thank You for that. Lord, I pray that in this moment that Your Holy Spirit would guide us into truth. Father, maybe we're here and we've never acknowledged Him. Maybe we've admired Him, but we've never confessed Him. We've never opened it up and invited Him to come in to be our Savior. Lord, I pray if there is someone here this morning... That as that is the case in their life, that this morning they would know you in a personal way. Father, it is your spirit that draws us. Father, you have been at work in, in lives long before we come along. So, Father, we want to work with you in what you are wanting to accomplish. I pray, Father, that this morning a great conviction would fall upon your people. Father, that your Holy Spirit would examine our hearts. And God, that we too would be one with you. Lord, help us. Give us the humility to bow before you. And to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I need your grace. I need the grace of Jesus Christ covering my sin. Oh, Father, that times of rejoicing would come. Father, that we would recognize the great gift that you've given us in Jesus Father, as we move forward in this holiday season, this, this Christmas season, where we proclaim the birth of our Savior, Father, that our testimony of the gospel would be quick on our tongues. And God, that you would do that by your power, by your might, and for your glory. Lord, we love you. We ask that you would guide this time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.